pretty good walking across this stage. I want to welcome all of you and um, our chairman of the board, Steve Elliott, and I will be up here to hand you your awards later on. But while I have the chance, I want to congratulate all of the award winners. You are the best of the best of state and local history, and that's why you're here tonight. So congratulations and, and enjoy it. This night's all about you. I want to introduce just a few people really quickly, and then you'll, you can eat, and our awards chair, Ken Torino, will take over in just a few moments. But first, I'd like to introduce you to the ASLH chairman of the board, or we call it council, Stephen Elliott. Steve? Our awards chair, Ken Torino. Ken? I want to give a special thank you to the Richmond uh, program chair, Julie Rose. Is she Julie here? And of course, to uh, Norman Burns and Paul Livengood, uh, that's our co-host chairs. And I know they're both here. They put together a terrific um, program and set of events for all of you, and I know you've been enjoying them so much. Um, we have a couple of sponsors that we'd like to recognize. First of all, we have our old friend Charlie Mady from the History Channel. Charlie's been with us for a few years now, and the History Channel's been with us for a very long time. And you'll be glad to know, award winners, that the History Channel is paying for your meal. So thank you, Charlie. <laughs> the Robbins Foundation has been a good and a big supporter of this meeting, and especially for all of the sites here in Richmond. And their executive director, Bill Roberts, is retiring. And Bill, we'd like for you to stand and get our thanks. We wish you the best in retirement, and I hope you're better at it than most of the other people I know. <laughs> and the Richmond CVB, uh, Jack Berry, would you please stand? <laughs> Above and beyond, absolutely. Um, and then at last, I'd like to introduce Ford Bell, the president and uh, CEO of the American Association of Museums that's joining us this evening. Now, award winners, these are special people I just introduced you to, but you know what? It's all about you. They're no more important than you tonight. So I hope that you, um, this night means a lot to you. We'll have photographs taken as you come across the stage, and please enjoy. I hope it's a night that you'll remember for a long time. Thanks. Hey folks, I'm Ken Torino. My day job is with uh, Historic New England. I'm manager of community engagement and exhibitions. 
And uh, it is my pleasure as chair of the Leadership in History Awards to introduce our speaker tonight. We are very, very fortunate and I think we have to thank Paul for this again. He's been doing great with our speakers uh, for bringing uh, Ed, Edward Ayers with, to us tonight. Edward Ayers became president of the University of Richmond in 2007. There, in addition to teaching, he still teaches first-year students, he has overseen the Richmond Promise, an ambitious collaboration across the institution. That work has attracted record numbers of excellent applications from around the nation and the world, inspired high levels of alumni involvement, initiated bold curriculum innovation, and strengthened ties between the university and the city of Richmond. Ayers has, become, has been named National Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching in 2003. Now, I think he's well known to many of you because he has written extensively on the Civil War and Reconstruction, winning numerous national awards, including the Bancroft Prize for Distinguished Writing in American History for his book, in the presence of mine enemies, Civil War in the Heart of America, 1859 to 1863. A pioneer in digital history, Ayers created The Valley of the Shadow, Two Communities in the American Civil War, a book, CD-ROM, and website that has attracted millions of users. In addition, Edward Ayers also co-hosts a nationally syndicated radio show, Backstory. A fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Ayers serves on the board of the American Council for Education, the National Humanities Center, and a range of historical and community organizations in Richmond. Join me in welcoming Edward Ayers. Thank you. Well, it's great to see everyone tonight. Welcome to Richmond. And I've been looking at the uh, program and seeing all the tours and uh, explorations that you have. And, uh, you know, I've only been here four years. I lived an hour up the interstate for 27 years before that. And uh, I discover something new about this city almost every day, it seems. So I envy you having a chance to come in with uh, expert guides and to see all the, the layers of the history here. So uh, it's pretty dark up here. And so... Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I have an, an awesome talk and that I'll be able to read it. Maybe the glasses will help. Uh, that's a little bit better. So what I want to talk about tonight is a, a common challenge uh, that we're all facing. Now, history catches up with all of us in one way or another. And that happened to me in a way I should have anticipated but did not. My scholarly specialty, as you heard, is the American South of the 19th century, the South of slavery and war and emancipation and segregation. And one might think that it would have occurred to me when I came from Charlottesville to Richmond in 2007 that the anniversary of the American Civil War might be impending. You might think that I would do some math and say, hey, I'm getting ready to go to the former capital of the Confederacy and the center of the slave trade, and I will be president if I make it that long during what seems to be called improbably the sesquicentennial. But I didn't think about any of that. You would have thought I had the chronology figured out and would have realized we were only four years away, but I didn't. And I was defenseless when Virginia's Sesquicentennial Commission 
visited me in my second semester as president, sitting there trying to do my job, trying to figure out which way you turn a spreadsheet or whatever, and asked if we might be interested in hosting the first event in the nation on the sesquicentennial. It was true that I barely knew how to do my day job, but I said, yeah, I'd be fascinated to do that. And what they wanted me to talk about was to talk about the coming of the Civil War. And I said, well, I'd like to do that, but I don't believe in that. Um, if they'd known the Civil War was coming, we wouldn't have had it. Um, and said, what I'd really like to call it is, is America on what would become the eve of the Civil War. But we couldn't figure out how to put that on the posters. And so it actually became America on the eve of the Civil War. And so I found myself suddenly enlisted in the sesquicentennial in 2008, way before I should have been thinking about that. Now, I, and I tried to take stock. Okay, where are we? Are we making progress? Do people understand the Civil War better than last time I looked? And the evidence is confusing. Americans have contradictory opinions about this. On one hand, public commemorations show a sensitivity to African Americans that was unimaginable at the time of the centennial of the war. On the other hand, polls reveal that nearly half the people in the nation believe that states' rights, rather than slavery, led to war. And younger people are more inclined than their elders to believe that, contradicting everything that academic historians have been saying for decades. So you have this kind of polarity, this kind of confusion, and you start to see, look around, seeing controversies already about secession balls and Confederate History Month pronouncements and fourth grade textbooks wildly exaggerating the number of black Confederates. The reenactment of Jefferson Davis's inauguration were already making headlines. But it was too late. I had told people that I would do this. Now I look back, okay, what might we learn from the past, being a historian and all, and I look back to the centennial. Then things seemed so much simpler. Then in the early 1960s, the American Civil War was framed by racial division, by Cold War nationalism, by the space race, by a South that was suddenly finding itself in an unaccustomed prosperity, but still with enduring customs of defiance. And no place embodied that particular spirit of 1961 better than my new home of Richmond. Virginia established the most active commission for the centennial and invested $1.75 million, real money back then, much of it for a new building in Richmond. And the building, which was just torn down recently, combined the elements of a department store, it's true, of a department store, a battlefield reenactment, and a UFO. Um, it, it had a, a really sort of a saucer-like roof, and inside you found the cutting-edge technology that we might have been talking about here. This year's new theme is going to be princess phones. They were picking up and listening to recordings and electric maps showing things and dioramas of <laughs> battles going on. And then, just to spruce things up, a Mercury space capsule was perched proudly outside, reminding us, as you're thinking about the Civil War, also think about how we're going to beat the Russians. So you're having this symbol of a unified nation emerging from the crucible of a war a century before. But despite the impressive props and the setting, 
the centennial commemoration found itself in an awkward situation. The events began as Virginia's elected officials and largest newspapers continued to fight against the Supreme Court and the federal government. Massive resistance shut down schools in several districts between 1956 and 1959 rather than allow black children to go to school with white. The early centennial events of Virginia invoked states' rights even as they celebrated a reunification of the nation. There was no mention of black Virginians in any of the materials from the Centennial Commission, which relegated slavery and black people to the shadows. The NAACP argued without effect that, quote, all that the Civil War was fought to preserve the Union and slavery. No attempt to glorify the Confederacy can be valid, for it was founded upon slavery, the most immoral of all human relations. But the Centennial Commission did not budge. Few whites in authority paid attention, but over the course of the Civil War commemorations that followed that statement, the civil rights struggle reached its apogee. The anniversaries of Manassas and Gettysburg and Atlanta coincided with events in Washington and Selma and Birmingham. And as the pace of the black freedom struggle quickened, centennial activities slowed. The 35,000 visitors at Manassas in 1961 turned into 5,000 at Appomattox in 1965, only months before President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. The Civil War centennial seemed irrelevant by the time that had limped to a close. Now, Virginia and the South have changed in profound ways in the 50 years following that centennial, of course. As you've seen, there, Richmond itself, a very dynamic place, 60 languages spoken in the local schools of Richmond and its region. And Virginia's sesquicentennial commission, the largest in the nation, was established in 2006, in large part because one of your own, Charles Bryan, the longtime head of the Virginia Historical Society, did his math considerably better than me and looked ahead and recognized, I bet nine and 10 and 11 follow seven and eight and figured out those things. <laughs> and began with a, its work with a statement that would have been unimaginable in 1961. Quote, it is important to know that it is not a celebration. There is no joy to be found in a war that caused the deaths of over 620,000 Americans, divided families, tore apart a nation, and left cities in ruin. Rather, it is a commemoration it is a solemn remembrance of the Americans, men, women, and children, black and white from the north and the south, who lived, fought, and died for what they believed. I was proud to be an ally of such an enterprise as we planned our event. Now, it turned out, even though I told people when they came, you realize that this is America on the eve of the Civil War. Stonewall Jackson's a math professor. Robert E. Lee is in the United States Army. Jefferson Davis is the United States Senate. There will be no guns in today's session, and yet people stayed. In fact, we had over 2,000 people from 26 states who gathered in our basketball arena at the University of Richmond in April 2009, the same arena where Barack Obama spoke a week ago today. My 16 fellow historians, academics and public historians alike, many of them from the city, did a great job of pretending not to know anything that happened after December 31st, 1859, which was their charge. Now, there's only so much Civil War to go around. I didn't want to use it all up on the very first event, so we did that. But actually, it was an intellectual discipline, and if they mentioned Abraham Lincoln, they got bonked on the head because they could not possibly have known that Abraham Lincoln was going to be president. And 
what people realized is that, boy, this whole antebellum idea that they're just sort of, you know, is it time for the war yet? Uh, was not the way it really was. And the most powerful moment came when Charles Dew of Williams College projected on one of the big screens a page from an account book of a Richmond slaveholder, Hector Davis. And people gasped when they saw that this one businessman had conducted transactions in the sale of men, women, and children of over two and a half million dollars in 1859 dollars in 1859. This one man. Now, that was powerful because people just said, this is not being linked now to secession thing. This is just a fact. This is a vast, vast business. And I've watched, and people seemed ready to listen to that and to accept this brute fact. The slave trade in Richmond was far larger than this, of course. It enveloped a large part of the central business district, a little bit farther down the street that way. About six blocks would have been a large part of the slave trade. And that trade was growing throughout the 1850s, gathering and shipping tens of thousands of people every month from across the middle Atlantic states to New Orleans and Texas. Many merchants and bankers and suppliers who did not deal in slaves directly built businesses around their trade with the slave traders. The enslaved people who lived in Richmond worked in some quite modern occupations, ranging from iron and tobacco to flour and tourism. And people were ready to listen to this and ready to listen that the North was not ready to wage a war against slavery. And all the different talks pointing out that immigration was the big theme. And people said, you know, I've never thought of the Civil War that way. It's not just all cut and dry. I always quote my mom at any talk I give. Uh, who was a fifth grade teacher for 30 years, and I told her I was going to get a PhD in history. She says, what for, honey? We already know what happened. <laughs> but the idea, it's a good line, isn't it? You know? Yeah, that's right. Mom, let's hear it from my mom. That's right. Now, the, the conference went very well, and I found myself pulled into the vortex of the sesquicentennial. I was already on the boards of the Virginia Historical Society and the Museum of the Confederacy and the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar, and I was a longtime ally of the Library of Virginia and the Valentine Richmond History Center and the National Park Service. I was coming to know the people who ran the Black History Center and the Slave Trail Commission, which is dedicated to tracing the path enslaved people were marched from ship to slave market and to the campaign to reclaim the old Negro burial ground in the shadow of I-95 where Gabriel who led what would have been the largest revolt in American history, was hanged and buried. And I saw that for decades, people of goodwill have been working to try to figure out how do we convey this remarkably complex history in this remarkably complex place that's so fraught with the meaning of being the former capital of the Confederacy. And I would visit these people and talk with them and be on the board meetings. I said, God, there's so much good work going on. But then I would go to meetings of the Kiwanis Club or whatever, and people are afraid to touch history. People in Richmond, just we've been burned, and people would use us as a symbol and say, I don't know, so you're going to talk about the Civil War? Boy, that sounds dangerous. And I said, no, I know the people who are in charge of this. I know the real professionals, not, not, not the dilettante university presidents who go out and play at history, but the people who are running the historical societies and houses and things every day. And I could see that a kind of possibility of collaboration that the city had not seen before. And we decided to come together in September of 2009 at the university to demonstrate to the business and civic leadership that the historical community here 
was ready to accept this challenge, was ready to unify in its eagerness to seize this moment, to confront and explain what we pointed out is the key to all of this. That this is not merely the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. This is the sesquicentennial of the end of slavery. And that they are paired and they are twin and they are inseparable. And that if we're going to talk, all right, thank you. And we told the, the 200 leaders who came about this what we call the future of Richmond's past. That Richmond was uniquely positioned to commemorate those anniversaries, that we had a historic burden, a responsibility, a place that had been the epicenter of this vast struggle. The key events happened beneath our feet here. They are ours, we said, and we owe it to ourselves and to our children, visitors from all over the world, to tell the story here, honestly and fully. Those events let us understand many generations that came before and many generations that have come since. So the heads of the museums and societies and commissions sat next to each other on the stage and told what they were doing and what they planned to do and how eager they were to work together and what good friends they were and how much they trusted each other. And they wanted to present a coherent story of the Civil War and Emancipation. The city leaders were surprised and relieved to see that the caretakers of the different parts of the city's past were friends and allies and collaborators. Our history has divided us for generations, but maybe we thought now our history could unify us. If we had the courage to look it square in the face, then maybe history would be the vehicle by which we could have understanding. We brought in two experts to listen to what we said and to help us think about how we might best proceed, and I'm happy to, to announce that uh, the, the one I'm getting ready to quote is with us tonight, Lawrence Peugeot, who's head of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And we asked him to come in and listen to all this and interpret in real time. What are you hearing? What might we do? What steps might we do? We've got the, we got the goodwill. What do we do? He gave us our best laugh and our most memorable line when he's on stage. He said, I want to tell you folks, you're sitting on a landmine. I mean a gold mine. <laughs> and we knew that he was right both times. And we had the clear sense that this could blow up, that people of, not of goodwill, that people who weren't willing to listen, who people who thought this might just be political correctness or economic development or whatever could do it. But we also knew it's a gold mine, maybe for economic development. We can all use it these days, but also because it was simply our moral responsibility. Race is still the explosive material in American life and history and culture, and the Civil War often provides the fuse, a way for people to use our history to wage some other war. Discussions of the Confederate battle flag and the like regularly combust the South, and Richmond has been no exception. The home of Monument Avenue is bound to be full of explosive material. But we decided to proceed anyway. We agreed to host conversations all over the city, at community centers and African-American churches, and at the three universities of the city, mine, Virginia Commonwealth University, and Virginia Union, hundreds of people came to these conversations to talk about our history and what we needed from it and what we owed it. People came to those conversations from many different angles and with varying degrees of enthusiasm and skepticism. Some people had to be persuaded that history had anything at all to teach us, that it's time to move on, 
Let's, I'm sick of seeing the statues. I'm tired of hearing about Lee and Davis. Let's build a future. Other people said, Richmond can't even think about talking honestly about slavery and the Civil War. No use fooling ourselves. We're generations away from that. Some people had to be persuaded that the whole thing wasn't simply an exercise in white liberal self-flagellation. We didn't try to push any particular agenda except to insist that there is no way through this history except through it. You can't walk around it. You can't wish it away. You can't just hope if you don't disturb it, it will evaporate. It has been sitting here for generation after generation, living and growing, taking different shapes. We're going to have to step up. We insisted a radical concept that actually knowing what happened matters. <laughs> that you can't just be throwing slogans around. You actually have to show some evidence. How do you know that other than your granddad told you? Okay? Happy to talk with you, sir. Let's look at the newspapers. Let's look at the, let's look at the debates about secession and see what they say. These conversations didn't necessarily end in an action item. They were intrinsically useful. They were their own purpose, and they continue today. But we decided that we also needed to show people what a truly inclusive history might look like. There was nowhere else in the United States where people were talking about emancipation and the Civil War the same way that Richmond was. So we could not hold up some other place as a model. So we decided to hold ourselves up as a model to ourselves or as a mirror to ourselves to see what kind of city we wanted to be. Could we make that happen just for a short time? Could it be a place with the resegregation that has ravaged American cities? Could it be a time that could be overcome at least for a moment long enough to understand each other? We would create Civil War and Emancipation Day in April 2010, and every one of the partner institutions would be open for free, and we would run free shuttle buses among the various sites stretched across the entire city. We would offer free canal boat rides and Segway rides. I never really asked about the liability issues on that, but we did it anyway. <laughs> the poster says, Richmond, come see your history in action. And record crowds attended the site of the slave trade down below the roar and rumble of I-95 as well as the Maggie Walker site, the home of the first black female bank president in the United States, as well as the American Civil War Center. And every one of these historic sites saw a more integrated audience than they had ever seen before. And the Maggie Walker home hosted more visitors that day than the day of its dedication ceremony. Here's a brief video of what that looked like. Just before the break of day, just before the break of day, just before the break of day, give me Jesus. On behalf of our 15 plus partners in the future of Richmond's past, we want to welcome all of you, all of you to our inaugural Civil War and Emancipation Day. When it was discovered that slaves were profitable for the merchants and the business people in this country, racial slavery was born. And we're still living with it. 
Our goal today is to begin the process of making that story visible to all of us. We know that the American slave trade tore apart families, ending marriages, separating parents and their children. What are our opportunities as a city to grow from this conversation? This city is the best place in the nation to have this conversation begin. Alabama John Cherokee They put him on a Yankee ship Alabama John Cherokee Again he gave the boss the slip Alabama John Cherokee Alabama John Cherokee Alabama John Cherokee They caught him again and chained him tight Alabama John Cherokee Stopped him many a day and night Alabama John Cherokee Alabama John Cherokee, way hey yo! Alabama John Cherokee, nothing to drink and nothing to eat. Alabama John Cherokee. Don't you wanna go to that land? Don't you wanna go to that land? Where I'm bound, where I'm bound. This is American history. This is not unique to Richmond. This is American history. This struggle that we are involved in is a struggle for the mind, for the soul of America. And all of us will have to work together. But we can't do it unless we understand. This past April, we had an even larger second annual Civil War and Emancipation Day expanding throughout the more of the city. And the Future Richmond's Pass was adopted by Venture Richmond, a progressive alliance of community leaders providing a home for the excellent coordinator of the program. We raised money from local corporations and businesses and individuals in the city who were eager to keep the momentum going, generally passing the money on to partners who could use $5,000 to do something that they had not been able to do otherwise. Now, along the way, I found myself invited to speak over and over again to different audiences trying to explain what we're doing. And as I was thinking about my talk tonight and sort of looking at all these things, I realized different kinds of language for different kinds of audiences. I was invited to give a talk that I said in my own head. I didn't actually tell anybody what the title was, but um, in my head it was, Why the Heck Should I Care About Your Civil War, uh, which I spoke to the Islamic Cultural Center and the Virginia Asian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and, and they invited me to come in and talk about that. And really, it was a real question. Why should they care? And it's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves. It's not just because it happened. It's on their calendars. Unfortunately, a lot of the Civil War is really tacky. Uh, you know, the recycling of the same images and stories and fourth-hand arguments, the memorization of the same sequence of battles and the Monday morning quarterbacking, the license plate and chess sets and bobbleheads. 
And too often we reduce the Civil War to a ball game, the gray team versus the blue team in which the battle, the field conditions or the good substitutions or whatever seem to be what the point is. But this trivialization makes people wonder why they should care about the Civil War. I don't care about a flanking maneuver. What else you got? But when we broaden our vision to recognize the two anniversaries of the Civil War and Emancipation, the freedom of four million people, when we recognize that they are in fact the same story, that tired old Civil War reveals itself as a matter of global importance and of enduring importance. Had it won its independence after all, the Confederate States of America would have been one of the most economically and geopolitically powerful nations on earth and explicitly based on perpetual bondage. American slavery had never been stronger than it was in 1860. The South by itself stood as the fourth richest economy in the world. Its enslaved population was worth more than all the factories and railroads and banks in the nation. The products produced by enslaved labor accounted for 80% of all American exports. The Confederacy's success would not only have fractured the world's largest, most dynamic, and most open democracy, but it would have established a model of economic development and industrialization based on forced labor. So successful was their economy that the leaders of the South had long talked of expanding their empire to absorb Cuba and other parts of Latin America, perhaps including Mexico. And even with the destruction of the Confederacy in 1865, the American South ended up serving as a model for South African apartheid. If the model had been instead the perpetual enslavement of four million people, the course of world history would likely have been profoundly different. People elsewhere in the world would have wondered whether large democracies could long survive and whether industrial development really required free markets and labor. The Civil War matters, in other words, because it was a war of global significance at a crucial point in world history. We've been too close to it to see all that it was. It was the war in our backyard, and so we've grown too familiar with it, content with digging up artifacts. We need to step back a moment to see it in its full dimensions. The Civil War was the catalyst for the most important event in this nation's history, the end of bondage for four million people who'd been held in slavery for more than 200 years, longer than the Civil War is from us today. Their freedom, which followed, while followed by 100 years of segregation and the poverty and injustice that grew out of that segregation and grows out of it today, is the greatest thing that has ever happened in this nation. Emancipation came later than it should, and it did not come with the spirit and aid it should have come, but it came nevertheless. African Americans seized the moment. They seized the moment when their children could not be sold from them at any moment, when men and women could not be whipped with impunity. The enslaved people made themselves free by rushing to the United States armies at the very first chance, beginning at Fort Monroe in May 1861 before the first battle. I was challenged early on, well, Ed, this is, seems very nice, the twin histories and all that, but you can't really be talking about that now because you don't have emancipation until 1863. I said, no, you have emancipation before Manassas when three men risked their lives to go to Ben Butler at Fort Monroe. And when black men fought 200,000 strong, they made a crucial difference in the outcome of the war. So the Civil War is at the heart of what this nation is about, freedom and respect and possibility for all Americans. The beginning of the United States we live in today began with emancipation and with the 14th Amendment that soon followed that established the baseline for what it means to have due process, 
what it means to be and to become an American, for your children to be born American. If we don't tell the story of that freedom, the story that puts emancipation at the center of the Civil War, we are betraying our own moment in history. And if we do put freedom at the heart of the American story, fully acknowledging the slavery it replaced, and fully acknowledging the reality and dimensions and horror of that slavery, we strengthen what is best about America. The freedom of African Americans, their struggle against every kind of obstacle to build their churches and schools and families and business communities, is the freedom of all of us. To the extent that the freedom of any America is not fulfilled, none of us is truly free. To the extent that all Americans and their unique histories in this country are respected and told and understood and honored, we are all honored. And to the extent that those stories are not told, we are all diminished. Thank you. So this was the punchline to those folks. The Civil War and Emancipation do not belong only to people who were ancestors here in 1861. They belong to everyone who lives in America in 2011. We all have a stake in getting the next five years right, for then the years that follow will be built on something honest and real and hopeful. So that's what I've said to groups, many of whom are immigrants and people of color. The white majority in Richmond and in the nation, for their part, need to hear the same story with a different emphasis. I found that people are willing to listen even when I told them that their first step in reckoning with the past is acknowledgement of the wrong, when I tell them that there can be literally no imagining of the suffering that has been in this city, this state, this region, and this nation. Here's something I said at one of the elite white churches of the city. At the time of secession, there were half a million people held in perpetual bondage in Virginia, the largest slave state. Their children could be sold away from them in any day. They could be beaten or sexually abused without recourse. They could not legally be taught to read, even their Bibles. Whatever kindness may have grown up among white people back in that environment, and kindness certainly did, it grew in a poisoned atmosphere. People of goodwill, black and white, did their best to live lives that lived up to the Christian ideals. But the fundamental injustice of people owning other people undercut the fundamental principles of moral self-determination, of loving one another as oneself as brothers and sisters. We simply have to acknowledge the scale of American slavery and its consequences. Two centuries of slavery with a whole nation complicit is our great national sin, and there's no way around that. So that's one part of the reckoning with the past, facing facts about the scale and duration and suffering of slavery. And frankly, that's painful, but it's not the hardest part because then you have to risk sounding hopeful. You have to risk sounding naive. Because healing cannot begin if there's not something worth healing. If there's not enough healthy tissue to heal with. And here is where the broadening of the sesquicentennial to embrace emancipation matters. Because the story of what has happened here is not only the story of the sin it is also the story of the triumph over that sin by the very people who were sinned against. Black people helped make themselves free. Right here, 14 Congressional Medals of Honor, Fort Harrison, right outside of Richmond. And when the Confederates set the city on fire, United States Colored Troops helped extinguish it. After that, all around us here, all around the Marriott, they built churches and schools and businesses and benevolent organizations and banks and neighborhoods and families out of nothing. 
in the face of every kind of opposition, from violence to segregation, to business discrimination, to poor city services, to substandard educational facilities, those things must be counted and accounted for. But they're not the end of the story. The descendants of the enslaved people of 1860 have become the most successful post-emancipation population in the world. We forget that. We can be parochial in our own sense of guilt, despite everything that was put in their way. They have overcome so much. They've made their own freedom, their own accomplishments. We're not celebrating, as the Sesquicentennial Commission pointed out, the Civil War, but we can and should celebrate the other anniversary, that of emancipation. That anniversary gives us hope that we can hope to heal our history, that we can make progress. Healing requires the cleansing of light and antiseptic, of honest and accountability, but healing also requires hope and determination that in our time in history, we can move forward. We have to believe that we can make progress, that we can come closer to living up to what this country stands for. We cannot atone for centuries that came before us, but we can be responsible for our own time, for our own fleeting moment in history. So let me end with some words I spoke to an audience in this very hotel on the Martin Luther King Day earlier this year. Largely African-American audience. So what I just said, I just said in Episcopal Church. What would I say on Martin Luther King Day? It seems I know that the events of the Civil War and the emancipation that accompany that war are far removed from the man and the victory we're celebrating today. Dr. King, after all, was of our own time, a world of cars and airplanes and television. The struggles of those first days of freedom, the thin light of a struggling new freedom, seemed like a different world than the sit-ins that occurred right across the street from where we are right now in 1960. But we cannot know where Dr. King came from. We cannot understand our own city's freedom struggle unless we understand emancipation and the century of consequences that followed it. How in the world did we get from the desperate injustice of slavery and the century of injustice that followed it to the great moral revolution led by Dr. King and other African-American Southerners? Where did Dr. King and his tens of thousands of allies all across the South get the confidence, the wherewithal, the determination to drive the black freedom struggle? Where did they get the moral strength? This is missing in large part from our, the story we even teach our children. It doesn't make sense. I remember when I went to the Olympics in 1996, celebrating Martin Luther King, but they gave no sense of what he had actually done, of what he'd actually overcome, because we didn't want to talk about that. It's just the greatness. But how, through the darkness of 100 years of segregation, is the foundation laid for the greatest moral revolution in this country, the civil rights struggle? It's a mystery, I think, to most Americans to figure out how that happens. And it happened from the churches and the schools and the businesses and the families created in the decades after emancipation that sustained a world of pride and accomplishment and determination in which against every obstacle black leaders could emerge. And these are the people who would set the South free from the segregation disfranchisement it had created to contain and constrain them. If you get to get a chance to go through Maggie Walker's home, just a few blocks from here, her walls are lined with portraits of Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois and female leaders. And what I said is that 
We can't find our way into that poverty. She was born in slavery. Somehow we had to figure out how do we tell the story from emancipation through Maggie Walker in the turn of the century to the civil rights struggle. You can't do it if you just say, I'm not interested in that Civil War stuff. I'm not interested in that emancipation stuff. I'm interested in the 20th century, the century of triumph. But it comes from roots. It comes from somewhere. And it comes from emancipation. So all these are parts of the story of the Civil War and emancipation. It is 2011 and this is 1861. I've learned now to live in parallel times. We're kind of a quiet time in the war right now after that Manassas thing. Uh, but we think that maybe they'll start moving in our city in the coming year. We'll see how that works. We have years of anniversaries before us. Years when we have the attention of people that we don't usually have. We've seen the attendance at all our organizations here increase during the sesquicentennial. I know we'll do our best to take full advantage of this responsibility, that no matter where we live, we will connect our local stories, our state stories, to these big stories that help give the fullest significance to the work that you folks do every day and for which I'm grateful. continuity of messages from Jim Lowens, and I think Jim is in the room. Jim was the speaker at last year's awards banquet. How many of you were here at last year's award banquet? Do you remember Jim's message? Don't forget what they taught you in school. The Civil War was about slavery. To Adam Goodhart, Ed, that was a fabulous Thank you so much. <laughs> now, I'm just learning, you can't read what's on the... <laughs> it, it doesn't show up. Uh, it's really strange. Um, <clears throat> the, the lighting is very difficult here. I hope I have it memorized. Every so often, but not necessarily every year, ASLH awards an award of distinction. The award of distinction is given by AASLH, this is tough, in recognition of long and very distinguished service to our field. Recipients are noted for exemplary contributions to state and local history and are recognized nationally as leaders in their field. The individuals must have distinguished, the, must have demonstrated the highest standards of performance and professional ethics. Past winners have included, great list here, Bill Alderson, Ed Alexander, Bob Richmond, Charlie Bryan, Heady company indeed. Tonight, we honor Dr. Dennis A. O'Toole. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> Denny has been an active teacher and tireless champion for state and local history for more than 40 years in the field. He is an educator, encourager, 
and champion of AASLH. Denny has a dream educational pedigree, all ivory, Princeton, Harvard, Brown. He shared his love of history with high school and college students and through Earthwatch Institute. But we embraced him into the museum field. He entered the museum field as curator of education at the National Portrait Gallery. Then he moved to Colonial Williamsburg where he progressed to vice president and chief education officer. Under Denny's leadership, Colonial Williamsburg began realistic portrayals of African-Americans in the colonial era, introducing social history to the living history site. At one time, Denny was quoted in an article in the Chicago Tribune, quote, today's Williamsburg is about the common man, he said. It is inclusive, not exclusive. It includes not just the gentry in politics, but the slaves, the blacks who were the majority of the population, but whose story has been neglected until now. It is a story about women, not just men. It's a story about young people, not just adults. It's a story about the middling and the poor, not just the wealthy. In his letter of support for Denny's nomination, David Crossan wrote that Denny's contribution to the field with the introduction of truly effective slave programs at Williamsburg would be enough to qualify him for the award. Now, I'm going to digress for a moment. It's not that social history was unknown at Colonial Williamsburg when Denny came. But Denny was the guy that made it effective on the ground. It was Denny who made the content live and reach the million plus visitors who were coming to Colonial Williamsburg. That's the difference that Denny made at Colonial Williamsburg. And I would add that to me, Denny was an enigma at Colonial Williamsburg. Who was this proper, ivy, educated New Englander who admired Beastie Boys and ZZ Top? Now, when at an AALSLH meeting has ZZ Top come out twice in the same day? Denny has very eclectic tastes. Denny continued his career as president and CEO of Strawberry Bank Museum. And then, enigma again, he and Trudy buy property in the Southwest. And they establish the Kenyatta Alamosa Institute in New Mexico. New Mexico. <laughs> Denny and Trudy founded this. They have opened their arms to archeology span and research of the Native Americans that populated this site centuries, millennia ago. Is this not enough? <laughs> but Denny is an educator 
and perhaps his most lasting contribution to the field is in the hundreds of professionals who have been mentored by Denny in the Seminar for Historical Administration and in his other roles throughout his career. At one session at this meeting, a young man came up to me and on his knees said, I can't stay till Friday night. I have to get back to a board meeting. But would you please tell Denny that I will forever be grateful to him for the opportunity I had to intern with him at Colonial Williamsburg as my entree to the field. But I have to go back now because I've got a board meeting <laughs> that I've got to contend with. This is an example of how Denny has touched so many, many lives. Denny was not one of those passing coordinators for the Seminar for Historical Administrator, Administration. No. Um, and, and during his decade in the role, any student who attended SHA felt like they had learned at the feet of the master. active in the field, teaching, AASLH. Denny has been a tireless, persevering advocate for this association that serves our profession so well. He has served it in leadership capacities over the years. He drafted the gift of history. He has been, he has led the charge for the AASLH Endowment Fund. And in addition to this, he also, although I'm not sure, you know, you should give all of this to us, AAM, he works for the National Endowment for Humanities, other, you give all of that to us, and you would have to do that. Um, when his nomination, this, is, this award is one of those things that does not come up annually, and it is carefully, carefully vetted and parsed. When Denny's nomination came up and it made the rounds, the only thing that came up was, yes, yes. Denny sets a high standard for professional and personal commitment to the work of state and local cultural institutions. He continues to invest his energy in education, history and historic preservation, the environment, lifelong learning. We are delighted tonight that part of Chuck Longsworth's leadership team at Colonial Williamsburg is here with us tonight. Denny, Bill Roberts as CFO, me, and department heads. About, oh, oh, Denny's predecessor as senior vice president and chief education officer, Bob Burney, and his wife, Margaret. Department heads, Connie Graft, Pam Pettengill, Christy Coleman, who you saw, saw in the video, if I asked people in the audience to stand who did, knew Denny through Colonial Williamsburg, Strawberry Bank, the Seminar for Historical Administration, and if you just damn love Denny, everybody in this room would stand. It'd be a love fest. So how do I sum up Denny? He is an enigma. But... When I think of Denny O'Toole, I think 
Then he is a guy who has been driven by content, connecting the content to visitors and audience, by building teams, and Denny was really a team builder in my experience with him. And out of all that, he does it because he is a teacher at heart. In other words, this is a guy who is all about history, development of institutions, and people. Denny is Mr. A-A-S-L-H. Steve, that was out of control. <laughs> well, I am deeply honored to be here tonight. Included among the others of you who are being recognized and awarded this year by ASLH for noteworthy achievements in the field of state and local history. I've realized for quite some time that I've gotten much more from the colleagues I've worked with and the audiences we've served together that I've given in return. Tonight, I see, it's more of the same. Our field has attracted and continues to attract a diverse set of people to its cause. There's no one way into the world of public history, no narrow funnel of education or work experience or family background applies. There are rather, rather many doorways into the house of history. This is a key strength of our field. I'm pleased to see that it continues to grow thanks to the efforts of many of you. I find this diversity to be one of the most appealing aspects of our field as well. Another is the sense of purpose so many of you bring to our work. A friend of mine recently observed that too many working Americans today have a job or career rather than a vocation or calling. He made me reflect on my own work trajectory in public history. I concluded that I have been on a sort of mission that I, that we, do have a calling, not just a job. I wish I could list all the colleagues I've worked with over the years to help create and carry out history programs and interpretations, community forums, instructional materials, professional development and training programs, teacher institutes and the like, but the list would be too long and names would inadvertently be omitted. So I'll forego such a recital. I'll simply say that working with colleagues to engage, inform, and motivate our various audiences, 
through telling and portraying the many human stories from our nations and states and communities past has been the most rewarding element of my working life. Looking back, I also realized that some of my most vivid memories are of people who came to visit the places I worked at and of what happened when they encountered the past presented to them. I've been there when a spark jumped the gap, when looks of awareness and understanding rippled through a group, when emotions stirred. I can still see vividly a group of students from Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. being asked as a long spear or sharps rifle was put in their hands if they were willing to march with Old Man Brown into Harper's Ferry and strike a blow for freedom. This was the middle part of a three-part school program at the National Portrait Gallery called The Trial of John Brown. Yes, the moment was contrived. It was simulated, it was staged, all that. But that's how these connections are made. Some person from the past, some event long gone, is brought into the midst of a group in a way that makes these apparitions substantial enough that their realities can be felt and weighed by people in their present moments. That's what we do when we do history right. And we often do get it right. After all, we have such powerful tools to work with. The actual place or building where it all happened. The real thing, the objects from the past, both tangible and authentic. Exhibitions that are accessible and engaging in design and pithy in content. And many forms of live interpretation from the guided tour to the full-blown first-person presentation or reenactment. When used skillfully and with awareness of just who our audiences are, these are the tools with which we evoke people and events from the past and make them part of our audience's personal, social, and civic lives. This is a worthy thing to do with one's working life. Doing public history well delights and enriches private lives, provides context and perspective for understanding events of the moment, and helps inform and add ballast to the ideas and opinions we all bring to our lives as citizens of this republic. This is important work. I hope for the good of our society that you continue to labor in your part of the public arena and that you continue to find your work deeply satisfying as I have despite the heavy challenges that face you in these difficult times. The civic well-being of the communities you serve depends on it. Congratulations to all of you who are about to take the stage tonight, and thank you for including me in your number.
I know many of you in the audience are here to honor uh, Denny tonight, but we do want to acknowledge that his family is with us at this table here. They've come in. Thank you. Wow. Um, I have to just say on a personal note um, that I was uh, introduced to Denny at Colonial Williamsburg, and he's one of the reasons that I'm here tonight, too. And uh, so thank you, Denny. Um, I think Denny's remarks were apropos for what's to follow here. I think you would approve of what we're going to hear about tonight. We are here tonight to recognize award winners for the excellence in their projects. And you're going to see that there is a tremendous variety here we're to honor. You will see that this is not just good history being done, but there's really great history being done in the field and across America and in many, many creative ways. So do look at your program, look at what's being done. It's an inspiration for us on the committee and I hope for you and people who will read about some of these projects in history news and in other ways. You know, we need to celebrate this, not just in the profession, but really to our constituencies, to our funders. Let them know the jobs that you are doing so well out there. Now, the Leadership and History Awards Committee really has to be acknowledged for their year-long efforts in recruiting nominations and then in the rigorous review process that we go through. And we've been really working on that to streamline it, make it easier for people. We've been trying to do new things to promote the awards. How many of you attended Awards of Palooza today? I hope some of you went to see films, okay. Good. Uh, that was something new we're trying. So I'm gonna ask all the state reps and the regional reps to stand and for you to acknowledge the hard work that they put through. So you all stand, come on. Thank you, they really do deserve that. This is a year-long process and it really, it's already started uh, for next year. And I have to say too, we couldn't have done this without the ASLH staff. We all know what a tremendous staff we have. Uh, but I do have to really, uh, I have to particularly thank Bethany Hawkins. Where's Bethany? There she is, stand up Bethany. Bethany keeps us in line, keeps us on track. We, couldn't, we wouldn't have been here tonight without Bethany, so thank you, Bethany. And with that, I think it's on to our award winners. We're here to honor you tonight. So the Award of Merit is presented to recognize excellence for projects, including civic engagement, educational programs, exhibits, publication, restoration projects, etc. We also have individual achievement and organizational general excellence. So I think we're going to get right onto this. I'm going to ask everyone who's receiving an award to come up on the stage here to my left, and then we're going to do a photograph with Terry and Steve. So with that, let's start with the A's. Alabama, the Moundville Archaeological Park, Tuscaloosa, for the exhibition uh, Moundville, Lost Realm of the Black Warrior. 
This new exhibition at the Parks Museum sets a new standard for interpreting Native American culture in a highly immersive environment that engages visitors and reflects the sophistication and sensibility of the Native American people who created the fantastic artifacts on display. This is Bill Bomar, director, accepting the award. Great. Thanks, Bill. Now on to the great state of Alaska, the Juno Douglas City Museum. They may have traveled the farthest. Juno for the Juno Alaska Capital City Digital Stories Project. This multi-year project encourages student participation and civic government through primary source research. 92 middle school students researched, wrote, interviewed, recorded, and assembled three to five minute digital stories covering four main topics in Juno history, creating a permanent resource about the history. And this was Jane Liddy, the director, accepting the award. Thanks, Jane. <laughs> Arkansas, Old State House Museum, Little Rock, for the exhibition, Badges, Bandits, and Bars, Arkansas Law and Justice, this exhibition conveyed the overall history of law and justice in the state of Arkansas from early wilderness days to the present. It presented well-known stories in new ways with little-known photographs and first-person accounts. Through the exhibition, the museum forged new partnerships with federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, along with strengthening existing partnerships with many organizations. Joe Ellen Mack, curator and Gail Stevens, director of exhibits, will accept the award. Thank you. Colorado, La Planta County Historical Society, Durango, for the Home for History Project. This was a collection rehousing and relocation project. The goal was to move the collections from overcrowded storage areas to start to state-of-the-art climate-controlled uh, secure spaces. This project created community investment in museum through funding opportunities, training, and hands-on experiences that allowed adults, youth, and museum studies students to be a part of the process of preserving history. Carolyn Bora, director of the Animus Museum, accepting the award. Thank you. Okay, on to, on to New England. Connecticut, Chester Historical Society. Chester, for the exhibition, Streams of Change, Life and Industry Along the Patacock. This all-volunteer organization purchased an historic Griswold mill and spent 10 years fundraising, renovating, and adapting the structure to serve as a museum for the community. This exhibition marked the opening of the building in 2010. And Frank Hubbard, president, will accept the award. Thank you. Okay, on to Cornwall Historical Society. I wish, as chair, I would be able to visit all of the exhibitions. This was one I did get to see. For the exhibition, Visions and Contradictions, the Foreign Mission School, 1870, 1817 to 1836, Visions and Contradictions told the story of the foreign mission school established by the American Board of Commissioners for foreign missions to, pre to prepare tawny and dusky youth from around the world to serve as missionaries to their native cultures. And this is Michelle Musto. Hi, Michelle. Uh, <laughs> 
She was the curator for the exhibition. Great. Okay. Delaware Historical Society, Wilmington, for the Reed House Exterior Preservation Project. Between July 2009 and June 2010, the Delaware Historical Society directed a $1.1 million exterior preservation and restoration of its signature Reed House and Gardens. The society concentrating on creating a sound exterior envelope and protecting their hallmark exterior architectural features as well as interior structure and collections. They used a blog to promote it, workshops, and an exhibition. Michelle Anastine, assistant CEO, accepted the award. Thank you. And now on to Georgia. Um, Barry L. Brown and Gordon R. Etwell, Athens, for the publication Crossroads of Conflict, a Guide to Civil War Sites in Georgia. This was based on a comprehensive study survey of sites by the Georgia Civil War Commission. 350 sites bringing the experience of the war to life. They also created um, online resources and GPS coordinates to get people there. And accepting the award is Barry L. Brown. Also in Georgia, the Georgia Historical Society, Savannah, for the Civil War 150 History Historical Marker Project. As part of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, the Historical Society and the Georgia Department of Economic Development collaborated on a project to use historical markers to promote tourism and create better access to the state Civil War history. Accepting the award is Todd Gross, President and CEO. Thank you. Congratulations. Thanks. Great project. Okay, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum Atlanta for the all-new Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. In the fall of 2009, the museum opened its redesigned galleries to great acclaim. The highlights of the renovation are an interactive map that detail the post-presidential accomplishments of the Carters and a high-tech video exhibition called A Day in the Life of the President. And we have with us Dan Stanhope, Deputy Director, accepting the award. Congratulations. Now on to Idaho. The 366th Civil Engineer Squadron Mountain Home Air Force Base for the publication Mountain Home Air Force Base Modern, the Cape Heart Weary Housing Project, based on extensive research this booklet tells the story of 1950s modern housing, the only work by renowned architect Richard Nutra in Idaho. The story of this housing speaks to the diversity of architectural styles in the state and shows the influence of the military on Idaho's cultural landscape. Sherry Robertson, CRM, Department of Defense, is accepting the award. Also in Idaho, the Basque Museum and Cultural Center, Boise, for the exhibition Hidden in Plain Sight, The Basques. This exhibition was a true community effort and its creation involved people of Basque descent throughout the Boise community as well as from the native Basque country. The exhibition honors the 
Basque immigrant ancestors and the struggles, hardships, and uncertainties they endured in immigrating to the United States. The exhibition traveled to Ellis Island Immigration Museum in New York and then opened at the Basque Museum. Michael Vogt, Executive Director, accepting the award. Congratulations. Also in Idaho, the Idaho State Historical Society Boise for the exhibition Governing Ohio, Idaho, how, sorry, <laughs> how people in the politics shape our state. Created as part of the restoration and expansion of the Idaho State Capitol, the exhibit provides a history of the territorial state government along with an explanation of how the state government works. Janet Gallimore, Executive Director, accepting the award. Indiana, for the Indiana Historical Society, Indianapolis. For the Indiana experience, the Indiana Historical Society is blazing a trail and setting an example for its peer organizations on how to break the mold of what historical societies have traditionally offered the public. The Indiana experience brings the society's vast collections literally to the fingertips of individuals and group audiences of all ages and backgrounds. Elise Scroggins, Director of Exhibitions, Research and Development, and Jeff Mills, Director of Exhibitions, and someone I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, Dan Shockley, sorry, Dan Shockley. There he is, will accept the award. Sorry about that, thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. Kentucky, the Kentucky Historical Society, Frankfurt. For the publication, Abraham Lincoln and Kentucky, this is the one just uptown, and Kentucky and the Contested Legacy of Jefferson Davis. These two special issue of the organization's scholarly quarterly, the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society, deserves recognition for their innovative approaches and sound contributions to a neglected part of the Commonwealth Civil War history the broadly significant and intricate interrelationships of Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis and their native states. Russell Harris, senior, senior associate editor and Dr. Nelson Dawson, editor, will accept the award. We feature this next one in our awards of Palooza. Louisiana's old state capital, Baton Rouge. For their new permanent exhibits, Louisiana's old state capital, oh, they opened a series of galleries and presentations bringing the vibrant political history of Louisiana's life, Louisiana to life, through interactive experiences with music, audio, computer kiosks, and a magical theatrical presentation. Mary Durasso, director, and Jan Sumrall, business manager, will accept the award. Thank you. Uh, my friends from Maine. Museums LA, that is in Maine, if you didn't know it, LA, Lewiston, Auburn. Uh, Catherine Bateman and Ann Kemper, Lewiston, for the project, Rivers of Immigration, Peoples of the Androscoggin. I said that right. Uh, this project is a fine example of a museum program that offers the public an accurate and scholarly account of local history in a way that is sensitive to community values. Based on an exhibition on 
Somali-Bantu immigration to Maine, a controversial topic in the community, Museums LA became a party in community reconciliation by expanding the exhibit to tie the topic of modern immigration to the story of early immigrants in Maine. And Rachel uh, DeGrosse, wait, I'm gonna say this right? De, DeGrosse IA, right? Close, good. And I know Rachel, so congratulations. Okay, we will talk. Yes, we will talk, okay. Massachusetts, uh, my home state, Martha's, if you didn't know from the accent, it is. Uh, Martha's Vineyard Museum, Edgartown, for the website Laura Jernigan, Girl on a Whale Ship, the rare journal of a young girl on a 19th century whaling voyage acts as a centerpiece for this online exhibition of American whaling to tell the story of this important part of a local, state, and national history. This is aimed at families and children. The website provides content in several ways, allowing visitors to explore the topic through stories and interactive features. Nancy Cole, hi Nancy. Um, education director accepted the award. Sons and Daughters of Holly. Holly, uh, for the exhibition, Holly's Old Town Common Historic Site. Holly's Town Common served as the religious, social, civic, and economic center of the town from about 1794 until its aband abandonment in 1848. The all-volunteer group erected a kiosk and nine interpreter signs along a trail that leads visitors through what is now a forest to cellar holes, wells, and other evidence to rediscover this vanished settlement. John Sears and Ray Goddard accepting the award. USS Constitution Museum, Boston. For the Family Learning Project, the museum received a 21st Century Museum Professionals Grant to develop and share theory, techniques, resources, and best practices that have proven to engage all ages. To date, the project has reached 16,000 museum professionals across the country through workshops, presentations, and publications on the websites. By engaging families, the USS Constitution is effectively introducing a new constituency to history museums as a community resource. Robert Kinney is the Director of Exhibitions. Thanks, Robert. Nice to see you. Michigan, the Edsel and Eleanor Ford House, Gross Point Shores and Odyssey Media from Boston for the Edsel and Eleanor Ford House Landscape Tour. This mobile app designed for the iPhone, iPod Touch and iPad takes visitors on a multimedia tour of the 87 acre grounds designed by landscape architect Jens Jensen. Um, they have had downloads from this from every continent except Antarctica, but we're gonna change that. Okay, Christopher Shires, Director of Education. Congratulations. We're gonna get Antarctica. Uh, Minnesota, uh, the Balone W. Young and, um, excuse me, Balone W. Young and Eileen R. McCormick, St. Paul, for the publication, The Dutiful Son, Lewis W. Hill, Life in the Shadow of the Empire Builder, Builder, James J. Hill. This is the first book-length biography of Lewis W. Hill, second son of the man behind the construction of the na nation's third 
Transcontinental Railroad, the Great Northern Railroad. Lewis's story is very important too, and he did such things as promote Glacier National Park, keeping the Great Northern Headquarters in St. Paul, reviving the St. Paul Winter Carnival, and many other things. John Lindley uh, with the Ramsey County Historical Society is accepting the award. Missouri, the Missouri Historical Society, St. Louis, for the project, the American with Disabilities Act, 20 years later. This program marks an important milestone in Missouri, his, uh, historic, hi, Missouri History Museums and their region's understanding of the dis, disability community and what it means to dis, be dis, excuse me, disabled in our society. The exhibit and companion website resulted from more than three years of concentrated outreach efforts and research to explore the history of the treatment of people with disabilities and the daily issues they face. The process of working with advisors and focus groups, creating the exhibition and website, and sharing the visitors' fundamental, their knowledge, fundamentally changed the institution. This is Vicki uh, Kaffenberger, Managing Director, accepting the award. Thank you, Vicki. Montana, uh, the historical museum at Fort Missoula, Missoula for the exhibition, When the Mountains Roared, the Fire of 1910. The museum designed this exhibition to utilize advanced techno technologies, educational interactives, well-researched scholarly texts, original art artifacts, partnerships, and public programs to relate the history of the West's most devastating wildfire in a meaningful way to a constituency still profoundly impacted by the event. Dr. Robert M. Brown, Executive Director, is accepting the award. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Don. I, I prefer wine. But with that said, let's move on to New Hampshire. <laughs> Um, Paul Wainwright and Peter Benet for the publication, A Space for Faith, The Colonial Meeting Houses of New England. Many of our nation's ideas, such as participatory government and the separation of church and state, were formed and debated in New England's Puritan Meeting House. This, book's, this book brings this story to life with a photographic journey through the few unchanged meeting houses in New England and a historical essay about the society that created them. With us tonight is Paul Wainwright accepting the award. Glad you could make it, hi Paul. New Mexico. The New Mexico History Museum, Santa Fe, um, El Paso Museum of History, El Paso, Texas, and the historic New Orleans collection, New Orleans, for the project, The Threads of Memory, Spain and the United States. This was a bilingual exhibition, catalog lectures, and performance series, and website with free curriculum guides and lesson plans, and it was co-organized by the Archival, Archivo General de Indias and premiered in Santa Fe before traveling to its partner venues. Staff from the New Mexico History Museum and the Historic New England, uh, New, New Orleans Collection designed the exhibition with New Mexico staff providing Spanish translation. And we have with us tonight Jessica Dorman, Director of Publications for the Historic New Orleans Collection. And do I have someone else? Francis Levine from New Mexico. Thank you. I didn't have that. 
New York, the New York Historical Society in El Museo de ba del Barrio. New York for the exhibition, Nuevo New York, 1613 to 1945. This ex exhibition explored centuries of interaction between New York City and the Spanish-speaking world, initiated by the New York Historical Society in collaboration with El Museo del Barrio, uh, where New Nuevo York was on view. Um, joining us today is Marsha Reven, Vice President of History Exhibition, accepting the award. Thank you. North Carolina, the Greensboro Historical Museum, Inc., Greensboro, for the exhibition Voices of a City, Greensboro, North Carolina. This exhibition shares the far from ordinary history of Greensboro, emphasizing what is distinctive while connecting the story to the larger American narrative. Curators consulted nearly 300 primary and secondary sources. Citizens completed over 1,100 surveys and staff elicited feedback from 2,100 residents and consulted more than 20 scholars. The exhibition offers a fresh new answer to the fundamental question that every history museum must answer. Who makes history? And we have with us Susan Joyce Webster, registered curator accepting the award. Thank you. <laughs> North Carolina Museum of History, Raleigh. For the, exhib for the exhibit, Behind the Veneer, Thomas Day, Master Cabinet Maker. Thomas Day was a free man of color in the antebellum South. A talented master craftsman and entrepreneur, he owned and operated the largest cabinet making shop in North Carolina before the Civil War, um, employing whites, free and enslaved blacks, and mixed race individuals. Behind the Veneer provides an intricate look into social history, decorative arts, craftsmanship, industrialization, and historical nuances of the day. Joining us tonight um, is Charlotte Sullivan, project manager, um, Earl Imes, got it, um, curator, Linda Williams, register, and Michael uh, Osborne, artifact technician, accepting the award. Thank you. Congratulations. The University Library of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina State Archives, Raleigh and Outer Banks History Center, Manateo, get that right, for the website North Carolina Maps. This website is a comprehensive online collection of historic maps of the Tar Heel State featuring more than 3,300 maps from three of the state's largest cartographers largest map collection, <laughs> divided into 13 subjects. These are way too long. Uh, 13 subjects. Well, I, I, I don't want to take away from our award winner. This was a great collaboration between the organizations and a website that has enabled them to share the materials far beyond their physical structures. Uh, John Blythe, Special Projects Outreach Coordinator from the University Library of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has accepted the award. Thank you, great project. I just want to go back for a minute. How many were there from Massachusetts? There seemed to be a lot. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Not enough. Here we go. Um, remember, I'm a, I'm a historic New England person. We do all New England, not just Boston. North Dakota. Uh, yeah. Germans from Russia Heritage Collection, Fargo, for an exceptional work in preserving and sharing the culture of Germans from Russia on the Northern Plains. 
Whether you seek information on your family tree or the perfect, oh, Kuchin recipe. The Germans from Russia Heritage Collection, <laughs> located in North Dakota's State University's main library, is a valuable resource. So with us is Claudia Berg, yes. Um, Expansion and new, initi new Initiatives Coordinator with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Congratulations. Also from North Dakota, the State Historical Society of North Dakota Bismarck for the project Gardening in North Dakota, from the native peoples to post gardens raised by soldiers at frontier army forts to World War II victory gardens, Gardening is a common theme in the state's history. This exhibition and public programs told not just about the crops grown, but the stories of the people who grew them. Following its time in Bismarck, the exhibition will travel to all corners of the state. And with us is uh, Ginya Hessler, Curator of Exhibitions at the State Historical of North Dakota. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. It's great. Moving on to Oregon. The Oregon Council of Teachers of English, Portland State University, and the Oregon Historical Society, Portland, for the Oregon Encyclopedia. This online exhibition grew out of the need for a comprehensive source of information about Oregon's history to identify its diverse people, places, groups, institutions, while providing an overview of formative events and to make this history accessible to classrooms and citizens in the state. Eliza Canty-Jones, editor of the Oregon Historical Quarterly, will accept the award. Thank you. Congratulations. Pennsylvania. The Fairmont Park Art Association, Philadelphia, Philadelphia for Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, for mu Museum Without Walls. This was a great program. This program, inferred by expert... Oh, God. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> this program, informed by experts in history, documentary studies, media, and folklore, and a multi-platform audio experience for Philadelphia's permanent collection of outdoor sculpture, and it's a preeminent collection, and it's available free by cell phone. What we liked about this was the interdisciplinary aspect of this, and with us is Jennifer Richmond Develop Richards, Development and Communication Manager. Thank you. Okay. The Jefferson County Historical Society, Brookville, for the exhibition Living on the Land. This exhibit leads residents and visitors on a self-guided journey, journey through time that effectively and creatively shares the significance and connectedness of the county's natural, cultural, industrial heritage. We have with us tonight Kenneth Burkett, Executive Director, accepting the award. Okay. Also from Pennsylvania, the uh, Pensbury Manor, Morrisville, and the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, Harrisburg, for the exhibition, William Penn, The Seed of a Nation. Visitors to Pensbury Manor, the reconstructed home of William Penn, often lack sufficient background in 17th century history to appreciate Penn and his vision. 
The exhibition goals were to provide a strong orientation to the site's multiple stories and themes that could be approached by people of all ages. With us tonight is uh, Doug Miller, executive director of the Manor, and Barbara Franco. Okay, I know Barbara, that's not Barbara, okay. <laughs> Kim? Okay, accepting the award. I'm just reading the script. I'm just reading the script. Congratulations. Sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Our, our, past, our past chair of the committee, he knows, he knows. He told jokes, I don't do them, I just make mistakes. Um, Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, uh, Richard C. Saylor, Michael J. O'Malley III, Kimberly L. Stone, Ted Walk, Christy Gather, and Tom Giles, Harrisburg, for the publication, Soldiers to Governors, Pennsylvania Civil War Veterans Who Became State Leaders. This book brings to life the personal stories of six Pennsylvania governors who were Civil War veterans, and it chronicles their lives, military experience, political triumphs, and defeats. And we have with us, yes, Richard C. Saylor and Barbara Franco, Executive Director, <laughs> Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission. Congratulations. Thanks. Okay, on to South. Uh, no, here we go. All right. The Wharton um, Ezerek Museum, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. The University of Pennsylvania Rare Book and Manuscript Library, Philadelphia. The University of Pennsylvania's Architectural Archives, Philadelphia, and Hedgerow Theater Media for the project. Warden Ezerick and the Birth of the American Modern. This was a major exhibition and series of color of events focused on Warden Ezerick's, an artist whose distinctive synthesis of art, theater, dance, and design forged an example of American modernism. And we have with us tonight Paul Eshauer, Eshauer? Eisenhower, executive director, curator, accepting the award. Paul. Sorry, I'm Thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> Historic Columbia Foundation, Columbia, for the project Connecting Communities Through History. Designed as a multi-year investigation of six historic neighborhoods within downtown Columbia, this initiative resulted in an interactive website, wayside signage, historical walking, and driving tours, brochures, and public programs. And John Shearer, Collections Interpretation Director, accepting the award. Congratulations, John. Okay. South Dakota, the South Dakota State Historical Society Pair for the journal South Dakota History. Starting in 1970, this quarterly journal contains readable, factual, and accurate articles on nearly every aspect of the history of South Dakota and the Northern Great Plains. While its editors aspire to the highest scholarly standards, they also seek to provide 
readable, well-illustrated articles of interest to general readers. Over four decades, the journal established itself as a highly respected and high-quality publication. JVOTE Executive Director accepting the award. Will do. Okay. Um, Tennessee. The Tennessee State Museum, Nashville, for the exhibition, We Shall Not Be Moved. The 50th anniversary of Tennessee civil rights sit-ins. 50 years ago, a handful of Nashville college students, along with religious leaders, uh, began a sit-in campaign targeting downtown Nashville lunch counters. The action sparked the formation of a mass sit-in movement, which became the model used across the South. And the staff partnered with the Nashville Student Movement Legacy Foundation on public programs, teachers' workshops, and first-person interpretation. And with that, we have George Graham uh, Perry, the third Curator of Social History, accepting the award. For Texas, uh, Donald S. Frazier, Abilene, Texas, Dr. Andrew uh, Hillhouse, Columbia, Missouri, and Ann Ball Riles of Birmingham, Alabama, for the publication, Love and War, the Civil War Letters and Medical Book of Augustus Ball. Love and War is not your typical Civil War letter collection. It is a fascinating set of letters between a husband and wife, but also details the experience of an increasingly disillusioned physician. An abundance of illustrations, maps, photographs, and drawings enhance the letters, allowing the reader to visually step back at a time. Uh, Dr. Andrew Hillhouse and Ann Ball Riles are accepting the award. <laughs> the Texas Historical Commission. William um, McWhorton, McWhorter, Laura Newcomer, Bob Brinkham, Dr. Stephen Sloan, Lois Myers, and Eleanor Mays. Okay, for the Texas and World War II initiative, the Texas Historical Commission launched this multifaceted, multi-year program to honor and preserve the history of Texas, Texans who served in the armed forces during World War II and the contributions made on the home front. And this consists of oral history trainings, workshops, and a series of 21 official Texas historical markers. And we have William, um, McWhorter accepting the award and, okay. Laura Newcomer, thank you. Congratulations. Star of the Republic Museum in Washington on the Brazos State Historic Site, Washington for the website, um, for the website txindependence.org. This website seeks to reintroduce Texans to the history of Washington on the Brazos, the birthplace of the state, and it brings the story of the Convention of 1836 to life and introduces the men who founded a new nation by making the history accessible to every classroom in Texas free of charge. Uh, David uh, Shaler of Edu Webb will accept the award. Okay, on to Virginia and the Virginia Historical Society, Richmond. 
for the exhibition I think many of you saw the other night, An American Turning Point, The Civil War in Virginia. This 3,000 this 3, square foot gallery exhibition featured more than 200 objects and 17 audiovisual programs encouraging vis visitors to consider how the Civil War separated from us by 150 years influences American society and politics today. Paul Levengood accepting the award and oh. Okay, congratulations. Silver tongue devil. Washington, the Center for Wooden Boats, Seattle. Great. For their dedication to making maritime history come alive since 1976, the Center for Wooden Boats serves Seattle as a hands-on and homegrown combination of museum, park, and community center, and it engages visitors in whole-body learning by putting the historic boats, oars and paddles, sails, and tools in the hands of people who visit. Betsy Davis, Executive Director, accepting the award. Also from Washington, the Museum of History and Industry, Seattle, for the multimedia project Mohai Minutes. Mohai Minutes is a series of two to four minutes video segments broadcast on YouTube. And it highlights the vast collection of artifacts, documents, and photographs in the museum's collections, as well as explores Seattle's neighborhoods, landmarks, and historic hut spots. And we have with us Helen Divchek, public programs. Divyek, okay. Public Programs Manager accepting the award. Thank you. And Washington's Women's History Consortium and Washington State Historical Society Olympia for the Washington State Women's Suffrage Centennial Commemoration. Working with a 15-member advisory pro. Uh, board, the consortium planned a multi-pronged commemoration that would reach each resident statewide through exhibition projects and events. And they created many opportunities for local communities to be involved. And we have with us Shema Stevenson, coordinator, accepting the award. Thank you. <laughs> West Virginia. The Royce J. and Carolyn B. Watts Museum, Morgantown, for the exhibition Helmet Men, Mine Rescuers of Appalachian's Coalfields. Helmet Men explores the development of mine rescue teams in the United States, particularly the Appalachian region, by focusing on the roles of rescue team members and the transformation of wine rescuers from uncoordinated events into an organized group operations. And we have with us Danielle Petrak, museum coordinator and curator, accepting the award. Nice to see you again. Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Historical Society Press, Madison, for the publication, Wisconsin's Own, 20 Remarkable Homes. This book tells the story of, a con of the considerable contribution Wisconsin's historic homes have made to American residential architecture and this is done through beautiful photographs, line drawings, and watercolors of the elevations of the houses along with floor plans, etc. The author's work to provide an in-depth view of each home, including the influences of the time and the impact of the growing industries and aesthetic tastes. Ellsworth Brown, director, accepting the award. Congratulations. <laughs> and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Libraries, Milwaukee, 
for the March on Milwaukee Civil Rights History Project digital collection. This digital collection provides a window onto the African-American civil rights movement in Milwaukee. During the 1960s, community members waged protests, boycotts, and legislative battles against segregation and discrimination. Um, and we have with us Professor Jasmine L. Linder with accepting the award. Okay. Congratulations. And now we're going to go on to our wild winters, uh, winners. Several years ago, we came up with this name as a temporary name. And we were trying to think of something that was, you know, maybe a little more creative. But then we went back to it and said, you know, these awards really did wow us. The Wow Award is an additional award for an Award of Merit winner whose nomination is highly inspirational, exhibits exceptional scholarship, and or is exceedingly entrepreneurial in terms of funding, partnerships, or collaborations, creative problem solving, or unusual project design and inclusiveness. And we would like to announce the 2011 winners. And the first of those, Martha's Vineyard Museum, Edgar Town, for the website, Laura Jurgen, Girl in a Whale Ship. And please, go and check this one out. And also, the North Carolina Museum of History, Raleigh, for the exhibition Behind the Veneer, Thomas Day, Master Cabinet Maker. Now, I, I do want to mention here that the North Carolina Museum of History would like to acknowledge the Curator of Decorative Arts, Patricia Phillips Marshall, who worked passionately to bring the life, craftsmanship, and accomplishments of Thomas Day to the world, and passed away suddenly after the exhibition opened. Thank you. And last but not least for our WOW winners are Germans from Russia Heritage Collection, Fargo, North Dakota. For their exceptional work in preserving and ensuring the culture of Germans from Russia on the Northern Plains. Congratulations. And we have one more. The 2011, the Albert B. Corey Award. The Corey Award recognizes primarily volunteer-operated historical organizations that best display the qualities of vigor, scholarship, and imagination in their work. And I'm pleased to announce this year's Corey Award winner is the Matthews Maritime Foundation and Matthews Virginia, the Matthews Maritime Foundation is dedicated to preserving and protecting Matthews County's maritime and cultural heritage. 
The all-volunteer organization developed the Heritage Trail, a 90-mile water trail highlighting the cultural, environmental, and maritime heritage of Matthews County. They received grant funding and counting government support, routed the trail, documented the site, and did public programs. It served as a wonderful model for communities wanting to share the history of their important waterways. Thank you. Congratulations. So, with that, I want to urge you all next year to come up with some really wonderful programs, publications uh, that you can nominate to our committee so that we'll have you up on the stage. And I promise to uh, pronounce your name correctly next year. Uh, with that, I want to say thank you all for coming. Thank you all for supporting historical, uh, hi for supporting history and AASLH and for doing these amazing programs and projects that are serving your community, whether it's local, state, or national. So thank you all. Good evening.